Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we have heard the reading of your word. We pray that you would bless it to us as hearers, that we would take it in, and that we would implant it, that you would implant it by your spirit in our hearts, that we would work it out in our daily lives. We pray that we would do this to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So this week I was thinking about um, this particular message to bring to you. It's going to be a message of stewardship, a message of giving. And in my five years, well, not quite a total of five years, but in my four plus going on five years, I've never done a one-off to specifically speak about money, about giving. And so I know it's going to make some of you uncomfortable. (laughs) I hope you have your steel-toed boots on. Um, but we'll get through this. These are not my words. Um, these are the words of Scripture. I learned a long time ago uh, from my father, and you've probably heard these words, um, this little anecdote. When you get together, particularly during the holidays uh, with family, there's two things you shouldn't talk about, religion and politics. That was true in my family's household, particularly my grandfather Morrow, I've talked about him before, he was a Pentecostal minister, and he was a Democrat. So there was two things that you didn't talk about, religion and politics. Um, There is a sense, though, in the church as well, um, particularly members and churchgoers, that there's one thing that preachers shouldn't talk about, and that's money. Um, They say you begin to meddle at that point. There's an old Scottish tale back from the days of the Reformation. There was a man attending a worship service in Edinburgh, Scotland. And during that time, there was the passing of the plate. And as the plate was coming by, he reached into his pocket. And he pulled out a coin and he dropped it into the plate. And as it hit, he recognized that it was a crown piece, which is a quarter of a sterling. And he meant to give a penny. And he winced and he said to the usher, he goes, I, I didn't mean to give that. He goes, once in, in forever. <laughs> the man said, well, I'll get credit in heaven. He goes, the usher said, you'll get credit for a penny. <laughs> money is something we can laugh about. Money is something that can become very uncomfortable for us. And so as we get into this today, we need to see it from Jesus' point of view, uh, from the Scripture's point of view. Kent Hughes says this, Jesus can have our money and not have our hearts, but He cannot have our hearts and not our money. So every part of us belongs to Christ. Jesus spoke a lot about money in the Gospels, a lot about money. In the Sermon on the Mount, we see it there. We see that we're supposed to give, but we're not supposed to draw attention to ourselves. We're not supposed to let the left hand know what the right hand's doing. We're to lay up our treasures in heaven. We're told that we cannot serve God and mammon. We also see in Luke's gospel, in the parables, that of the prodigal son. He wanted all his money right now, all his inheritance, and he goes off and squanders it. There's parables of the talents, parables of the ten minas, and other parables, the dishonest manager who was wasteful. 
And when he was getting fired from his job, he knew that he didn't want to dig and he didn't want to beg. And so he looked to be favored by the people who owed money. And so he quickly settled accounts for half or less of what they owed. His master found his stewardship shrewd. Then there's the contrast of two people in Luke's gospel. And this gets us to where we're going. In Luke chapters 18 and 19, two rich men are brought to the fore. One is the rich young ruler. That's in chapter 18. You know this story probably very, very well. He approaches Jesus and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, knowing where he's coming from, asks him the question, Why do you call me good? He's setting up this young man. Setting him up because he's God. There's only one who is good and that's God. And I'm God. So if anyone's going to tell you how to have eternal life, it's going to be me. But he plays along with him, wooing him all along. He says, well, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not murder. Honor your mother and father. The young man said, all these I've kept since my youth. He's thinking I'm in. Jesus says, one more thing you lack. Go and sell all that you have, give to the poor, and come, follow me. He went away sad because he was extremely wealthy. You have a day antithesis in Zacchaeus in Luke 19. You know him. He's the short man. He was not just a tax collector, he was the chief tax collector. So not only did he skim for himself a little bit, he skimmed from all the other tax collectors. He too was extremely wealthy. And yet he heard about this man, Jesus. He's living in Jericho. He hears that Jesus is going to come by. And he says, I want to see who he is. But you know the crowds that followed Jesus who wanted to see Jesus. They had heard about the miracles. And here's this short man. He can't see through the crowd. So you know the story. Kids know the story. He runs down the road a little bit further on down and he climbs up in a sycamore tree. And here comes Jesus. He's got a bird's eye view. And Jesus gets to the point where he is and he says, Zacchaeus, come down. Today I'm coming to your house. He goes to his house. We don't get a lot of the details, but what we know from the passage is salvation came to Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus makes this statement after he comes to faith in Christ. Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone else, I will restore fourfold. And Jesus said, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. When we come to faith in Christ, when we begin to understand the great price, the gracious, generous giving of the Son of God to us, unworthy 
sinners. We cannot have help but have grateful hearts. Hearts that give us open hands. We realize that everything we have, everything that we are, is totally and completely His. We have been bought with a price. Therefore, we're to glorify God in our bodies. Well, this message is on gracious, generous giving. And I'll have four points this morning. The gift of grace, the origin of grace, the act of grace, and the motive of grace. First, the gift of grace. You need to understand here in 2 Corinthians verses 8 and 9, the backstory. Paul is going to get into giving in this particular passage, these two chapters, not just these first nine verses. And he's really not speaking about tithing. He's not even talking about an offering. He's talking about a collection, a collection for the poor Jewish church in Jerusalem. You see, when Paul had gone to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, when he was there, he saw James and John and Peter. He had put forth that he was being sent to the Gentiles to preach the gospel, Peter to the Jews. And they, uh, they gave him the credibility to do that. They blessed his work, so to speak. They said, but one thing we want you to do, remember the poor. And Paul did. On every missionary journey, as he planted churches, he was talking to them about making a collection once a week for the poor in Jerusalem. He did this to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. He wanted them to do that. That is a year, approximately a year prior to 2 Corinthians, them receiving this particular letter. And so, he had talked to the Corinthians about gathering for the poor. And the Corinthians at that time were all on board. They started the work. But now they're waning. They've become distracted. The things of the world were beginning to create interest within them. It's true of all of us as Christians. The Corinthians church was rich, wealthy, unlike the Macedonian churches that we'll see in a, in a moment. Corinthus is in Acacia. It's the southern part of Greece. A lot of trade there, a lot of economic trade. People have become very wealthy there. And so they were a wealthy church and easily distracted. They were really into the spiritual gifts such as tongues, prophecy. And they wanted to parade those gifts and flaunt those gifts. And they, and they began to forget about what they're really saved to, to be complete followers of Christ. It can happen to us. We're naive. We're gullible. We're easily swayed. Things catch our eye. Material things, new cars a new house, a different school for our kids. Several things can distract us and, and get in the way, but Paul takes a pastoral approach here. He does not browbeat this Corinthian church. 
He comes to them gently but firmly. He's going to talk to them and use two examples to try to get them back on track to giving. As I said, this, this giving was a collection. It was a gift for the poor. But the principles within this passage apply to all giving of our time, of our talents, and our treasures. So it does speak principally to tithing. It does speak principally to giving, to offerings. And I think you'll see that as we go through this text. So in verse 1, he talks to the Corinthians pastorally. He says, I want you to know. I want you to know that the grace of God has come and has been given to the churches in Macedonia. This grace, this idea that is the grace of God that has come is a gift to the Macedonian churches. Giving is a gift. If you look at spiritual gifts within Romans chapter 12, it says to those who contribute, to contribute generously. Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount when he talks about giving in chapter 6 he says when you give the implication is and you will give. All Christians, all followers will give. And so Paul starts that this giving this generous giving we're to do is all a gift of grace from God. Grace comes to us we are unmerited. We don't deserve the favor of God. But He lavishes His grace upon us. Brings us to Himself. He forgives us of our sins. And that grace changes us. It changes us to see the world differently. It changes our relationship with God. We truly then are free to love God and to love others. And the greatest expression of love for us to others is in giving our time, our talents, and our treasures. So grace is a gift that is given to us that promotes a generosity within. Because that generosity reflects the generosity of God the Father in sending God the Son. He withheld nothing from us. So this gift was given. It's interesting that phrase, has been given, is in the perfect tense. It means it has accomplished what it is supposed to and it's not going to change. You have everything that you need. So Christian, if you're a follower of Christ, you know what it means to give. Your conscience convicts you as to what you should give. And know this, it's never about the quantity of the giving. It's about the quality of the giving. It's about the heart of giving. It's about the love of giving back to God and giving toward others. Now this example that Paul brings forth, he says, first of all, it's a, it's a gift of grace that you should be generous. And it gives you the ability to be generous. But then this example goes even beyond that. The Macedonian churches are up in northern Greece. 
Paul had gone by and he had seen the Corinthian church and later he goes back through Macedonia again. He had told them about this weekly giving for a collection. The Macedonian churches were dirt poor. Dirt poor. The text tells us that there was a severe test of affliction and extreme poverty. What was the affliction? Christians were hated. If you professed faith in Christ in the churches of Macedonia, that would be Thessalonica, that would be Berea, it would be Philippi and others, you were chastised. You couldn't get work. They'd go, you're a Christian? We don't need any bakers. You're a Christian? We don't need any blacksmiths. You had to fend for yourself, so to speak. You had to find work. And it was hard. And then they were persecuted outright. Thrown in jail. And they had this extreme poverty. Extreme poverty. It's interesting, the Greek word that's used there is a word that we have, a blithe sphere. You ever heard of that term? It's a little pod. It's a one-man bell, if you will, that someone can go down and plumb the depths of the sea. And it goes to extreme depths. Now we have submarines that will do that, mechanical and so on. But the idea of this depth of poverty is it's as deep as it can be. You're as poor as you possibly can be. You have nothing. And yet, they had one other characteristic. They were afflicted and had deep, extreme poverty, but they also had an abundance of joy. Joy in their salvation in Christ Jesus. Knowing that they have eternal life. That there's more than to this life that they're living right here and now. Although God supplies all our needs according to His riches and glory. They know they have that promise. But they have the promise and the hope of eternal life yet to come when all things are made new and that brought joy. Along with the forgiveness of their sins brought extreme abundant joy. And so as they had heard of this collection, they tell Paul, we want to go and participate as well. We want to give. And their gift overflowed with generosity. How can that be? How can it be when you have so little that you want to give? It's knowing, truly knowing who Jesus is and what He's done. They were very generous. Giving isn't just the duty of the rich and the wealthy. It's the duty of every Christian. The value of the gift, as I have said, is not the quantity, but the quality. You see this demonstrated in Mark chapter 12. Jesus is at the temple and He is watching the boxes for the offering. These boxes, archaeologists say, have little brass funnels that people would throw their coins in. The greater the gift, the greater the noise. Jesus is watching this from a distance. 
And here they come one by one and they're dropping their coins in there and it's making a ringing, a clanging, a music if you will. And people are taking pride in what they're giving. And then a widow comes walking up. She has two copper coins. She drops them in. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing in the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she gave out of her poverty. She has put in everything she had, all she has to live on. That is gracious, generous giving. It is a demonstration of love. God is pleased with little gifts as well as big gifts. They all matter. The church of Macedonia gave out of their poverty. They saw that others had a greater need than themselves. Sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? He saw our great need a need we couldn't pay for. This is all a work of grace. Through the Holy Spirit working in the hearts of His people to express their love for God and others through giving. It's what those do who are converted. Because we're a new creation. All things are made new. The old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. Now I live as a citizen of the kingdom. And I gladly give to that kingdom. Well, this is the starting point, this grace. Now the origin. Paul goes on in verses 3 through 4 to talk about the giving that this Macedonian church did. They gave out of their means. It, It wasn't based on what was to come down the road later. They didn't say, well, I'm getting paid in three months. I'm going to give part of that. No, they gave from what they already had. But they gave beyond. Which means they were convicted not to just give a little, but to give sacrificially. Because that's how Christ gave Himself to us. Sacrificially. Gave His all. So they went beyond their means. That actually means they went contrary to their means. It was an act of love, an expression that was so great that it would make people turn their heads. Go, you you gave what? And they would smile and they would say, I gave out of love. So they gave beyond their means. This 2 Corinthians letter gives the impression that Paul tried to talk them out of it said, you're poor, please don't. You, you, you need this. You're a poor church. But it says they begged. They begged to have the ability the, to give, to take part, to participate, to share in the relief of the saints. That's the fellowship of the saints. That's koinonia. This is how devoted they were to Christ. They wanted to give. What makes a Christian do that? 
It's great love. It's great love received and then it's great love returned. It's confidence in knowing that God is sovereign. That confidence in Him supplying all our needs according to His riches and glory. We know that we shall never have lack or want. We look back into the Old Testament and we see the children of Israel for 40 years going through. Their food is provided for. Water comes out of a flint rock. Always God meeting the needs of His people. So too the Macedonian church was looking to give to the needs of the people to reflect that of a giving God. But the origin of their giving began with them not reaching into their pockets and pulling out what they had. It was first giving themselves to the Lord. You see, they knew and understood when Jesus says, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That means total devotion. That means following. I've ordered some booklets for us from PCA Foundation. We should be getting them soon and I hope you'll take one and read through it. It's Kingdom First. It talks about giving to the kingdom. One of the daily devotions comes from Matthew 6, 19 through 24 and it talks about loyalty. Giving out of loyalty. The author makes an astute observation here. You know when people become citizens of the United States? There's an oath that they take. That oath is this, that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or citizen. They deny all. That word abjure means jury, meaning to swear, and ab meaning away from. They take that oath, they turn their backs to everything that was before, and they go forward as a citizen of the United States. We do that too when we come to Christ. We leave all and follow Him. They gave themselves to Christ, to Him, to His kingdom, to His work. It's when we do that that we realize (laughs) that we are children of the King. Everything He has, we have. And it's a whole lot easier knowing that everything that you have is from Him anyway. Then you begin to hold things much more loosely. He is always faithful to us. So He is the origin. He is the inexpressible gift. Everything that we have, we have from Him. So it's easy to freely give to Him. John Stott says, the more we cling to Christ, the more our hands open for everything else. The Macedonians wanted to be Christ-like. They wanted to put forth and show and demonstrate their love. Well, we've spoken about the gift of grace and the origin of grace. Now the act. As we went through James, we learned that we were to be doers of the Word. Titus is brought forth 
in this portion of the scripture, six, verses 6 and 7. It's not enough to say something. We need to do something. We need to act. And we need to act in ways of grace and in our giving. Titus was sent back to stir up afresh, to rekindle this collection that they had agreed to give. And so Titus is going back and says, complete this act of grace. Complete it. Meaning they were incomplete. And then Paul in this letter says, you excel in everything. You excel in faith. You excel in in speech. You excel in knowledge, in all earnestness. These are aspects that the Corinthians church was known for. But it was incomplete. What was incomplete is their giving. This passage here doesn't necessarily have to be about giving. It could be about prayer. It could be about fellowship. It could be about discipleship. Followers of Christ are to practice what I call gospel living. Everything about us, everything that we do is under the lordship of Christ. We don't compartmentalize. We don't live in silos as the people of God. Although many of us do. Many of us do say, okay, I have my relationship with God. I have my relationship with the church. And I do those things here. But as far as my job and career goes, as far as raising my kids and sending them to college, as far as where I live, all of that is mine. I manage that. I take care of that. God says, no. If you're a Christian, everything that you do, you do under my lordship. And we follow and practice his word in everything we do. Let me, let me give you this example. We know about depravity. We learned in the five solas. When we were doing the, um, the series on, on Reformation, Total depravity means not does not mean that we're as bad as we possibly can be. But it does mean that every faculty of our body is tainted. Our minds, our hearts, every aspect. And then Christ's sacrifice, His blood cleanses and then reverses. And no longer is every faculty tainted, but every part and faculty of us is redeemed. So our minds, our hearts, our wills, that means where we go, what we say, what we do, all of those things come under His Lordship. We practice gospel living. It's holistic in everything that we we do. And we want to excel in those things. So as we look at our lives through the mirror of Scripture, and we should do this regularly, how do you line up? And with regards to money, what does your bank statement say? I know that's really touching toes now. But what does it say? Where do you spend your money? I'm not saying anything to you that I haven't already said to myself. This past summer, we looked at this. Went through our statement. What, what, what am I spending? And how much is it? And, and is it really necessary? And does it keep me from giving to the church? to the kingdom, 
for the propagation of the gospel, the progress of the gospel. We made cuts. We got rid of cable. We got rid of other things and gave more. And can I tell you? Can I testify? There's no lack. I don't notice any difference. That's what Paul is bringing to our attention. What do the Scriptures say? How are you living? How are you giving? What is the motivation for your giving? That's the final point that we have. Paul says, I'm not going to command you in this, but he is going to bring forth one more example. I've been talking about it all along, and that example is Christ Himself. He says in verse 9, you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know this grace. You have been forgiven. You know what that is like to have that burden of sin taken off of you. How free it makes you. Free to obey. Free to live under His rule and His reign. Free to share the gospel. Free to give. But he puts forth the example. He says, you know that he, Jesus, was rich. Jesus in his eternal state, if you will. His pre-incarnate. There he was in all his glory with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Lacking nothing. And yet, as Paul says in Philippians, all this he set aside. He emptied himself to become like you and me, to take on flesh, the incarnation. That was his humiliation, that was his poverty. God, who created the heavens and the earth, has all things, and he became man. He became poor for your sake and for mine that we might become rich. Not rich in money, in wealth, rich in the righteousness of God. You are clothed in His righteousness. You have eternal life and an eternal inheritance. You have more than you can fathom. There's two lessons in this text. One is that self-sacrifice is the truest measure of love for one another. And that the gift of Christ puts everyone under the, the obligation to do good for others. This is all about the grace of God. And it's about the cross where all this transpires and takes place. Kent Hughes had something to say in his commentary on this. And I think it gets to the heart of the matter. He says, there's no way to grow to spiritual maturity without committing your finances to the Lord. Jesus can have our money and not have our hearts, but He cannot have our hearts without our money. Money is so entwined with one's soul. Some say that the average American spends 50 percent of his or her time thinking about money, how to get it, 
how to spend it. Whether the statistics is accurate or not, it's generally true. And it is also true that our handling of money defines our affections. Three things we truly treasure, are these, these things we truly treasure, how tightly we are about to hold them in this world. I would not be true to God's word, he says, or to you, if I did not say that some of you have reached sticking spots, stagnant in your spiritual growth, because you have not begun to give as the scriptures and the conscience and your conscience is directing you. He says, I have heard all the reasons. Reasons why one cannot give. It's too hard. You have too many obligations. You'll begin when you get a full-time job. You'll begin when your car is paid for. You'll begin when the children are done with school. You'll begin when you can really give something instead of just a little. You'll begin to give when you get promoted. But God's Word says to excel in this act of grace now. We of all people have everything, everything to be joyful for. And therefore we should be generous as He is generous because of what Christ has done for us. Let us demonstrate the love we have received by showing love for one another by our giving. Andrew Peterson has a song, Isn't It Love? And I'll close with this. He says toward the end, Isn't it love to look down from the sky and see your only son on the cross asking why? And somehow let him die that way and not call the whole thing off all for a man here in Kalamazoo who loses his bags in his way sometimes. But that was something that you already knew. And still you died for me. Isn't it love? This rain that falls on the sinners and the saints. Isn't it love? This well that won't run dry. Isn't it love? These mercies are made new every morning. Isn't it love? Isn't it love? Isn't it love? This is why we graciously, generously give to express our love for Jesus because of His love for us. Let us pray. Father, we do thank You for Your Word. And though it may be uncomfortable for some to speak about giving and speaking about money, we should know that we will never lack as your sons and daughters. Let us take great comfort in what is yet to come. Our eternal life, our eternal abode, our communion with you when all things are new. And in the meantime, for your graciousness to us in making mercies new to us each and every morning. We thank you for Christ and it's in his name we pray. Amen.